Today's readings come from Exodus and Matthew. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Then Moses ordered Israel to set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they called not they, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. That is why it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there by the water. The whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elam, and Israel came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hands of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. And each day you shall go out and gather enough for that day. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were possessed with demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and cured all who were sick. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases. Now when Jesus saw great crowds around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. A windstorm arose on the sea, so great that the boat was being swamped by the waves.
but he was asleep. And they went and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a dead calm. They were amazed, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of the pastors here at Zao. And I'm really excited because I am really enjoying this sermon series that we've just started. We started it last week. It's called Formation. And in Formation, we are tracing Peter and some of the other disciples through the process of being formed from individuals, this kind of into this ragtag collective, into the church that would become our church and the call of the people of God. So we see them, something that we're all going through, a personal journey where we are looking for God and looking for God to change us. But God, as God is forming us into new transformed beings, God is also transforming us into a collective, into formation, so that we can be the church together, so that we can slay. We all have these individual stories and these individual unique paths. And in our culture, we have a really strong impulse towards individualism. It's hard for us to think of ourselves as a collective because that seems to violate our uniqueness. But actually, in this kingdom way of being, in the way, with a capital W, um, of Jesus, the way invites us into being fully and uniquely ourselves, formed out of the dust into a unique and beautiful self, and also unified with God's people into new creation. And so while we are all familiar in our context with the kind of individual glow up, we're trying to understand through this series formation what, what it means to glow up together, to become ourselves fully and truly, but also to become ourselves with one another, to become part of something bigger than ourselves, bigger than any individual part, a body, the body of Christ, the way. And so we started last week with the invitation, that call, that invite, that moment that we know that we have a path in front of us, the moment we leave everything behind in search of something more. And it can be really exciting, can be really hope-filled, it can be really fun. For me, as I shared last week, it can also be really difficult. It can come out of sorrow and grief, a deep need that we have and a longing. Either way, we have this hope in something more. And so we leave behind the things we know for the potential of what could be, of what we could be. A realization that God is good, that the way of Jesus is worth pursuing. And so once we accept that call to adventure, once we say yes to that invitation from God, we all just go at it relentlessly without wavering till the end of time. The end. No? Well, the disciples didn't. And all records we have of the people of God show a very flighty, very nervous bunch. So if you feel like you're often plagued with, with doubt, you're not alone. 
And if you worry that your doubt makes you unfit to be a disciple of Jesus or to call yourself a Christian or to be on the way, I promise you it actually comes with the territory. In Matthew, we have this fascinating story. It's in chapter 8, and it's just a bit out from the call story that we were talking about last week. So not too long ago, these disciples left everything, left their boats, left their dad, left their net, and they followed Jesus. And you really have to believe that. Believe in Jesus. Believe in this person in front of you to walk away from everything. I asked you all last week what you are called now to leave behind. We are all called to leave something as God invites us into a new way of being. But now I want you to think about what you've already left behind, even if you picked it up again later. I've heard from so many people at Zao, oh, I thought I would never be able to step into a church without being struck immediately by lightning. Or... I am afraid to go to church because I just don't want other people to judge me. Or, I have been to church and I have no intentions of going back because it is too painful. How many of us had to actually lay some of our past aside in order to even be here? In order to show up to this community in whatever ways we do or have? To go to church for the first time? Or to ask somebody about their faith? Or maybe to pray to God, even if you're not sure anyone's listening. Or perhaps church itself wasn't the thing that made you nervous. But these new ways of doing church at Zao have brought a little chaos into your life. How many of you have had to take a risk to live out your faith in a way that made you really uncomfortable? Like talking to strangers about church. Or worse, talking to people you know about church. Maybe you've protested in the streets for the first time. Or maybe this is the first time when you're at a church and you look around and everybody doesn't look just like you. There is a common theme here of the things that we've had to leave behind, of the patterns we've had to confront and let go of in order to even be here. There is a theme of releasing fear. Doubt is what happens when fear creeps in and takes hold of us. It convinces us that the thing that we desire and long for is too good to be true. God can't be all-loving. I can't be worthy of God's love. Church can't be for me. I can't actually share with other people without judgment. I can't live fully into my faith and into all of my values. Fear convinces us that this world is too messed up to really be a place with eternal love at the heart of all creation. And so though we long for it and we want that badly to be true, fear creeps in and we doubt and we say, no, 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 I'm smarter than that. I will not be fooled into having hope. It's not that great after all, and I'm going to see it coming before it gets me. So we retreat back into whichever patterns are most comfortable for us, because we're terrified. Luckily, we have the disciples and the Israelites to show us what unwavering, fearless faith looks like. Psych! Okay, sorry, I think my 90s are showing. Uh, Should I say, like, JK? Or is that, no, that's my aughts. 
I need my Gen Zers to catch me up on slang here. However you want to say it, the expectation that the Bible is full of people without fears and doubts is just totally bogus. Scriptures lay out for us just how complicated it is to pursue the way, to pursue Jesus. Scripture shows us that our doubt, our skepticism, our fears are really normal. And it also shows us how to cope with them. So let's go back to Matthew and this story of the disciples in the boat. So they have left their own boats to follow Jesus. And Jesus is being Jesus. Jesus is casting out demons. He's curing the sick. He's healing mother-in-laws. He is on fire. He's doing his miraculous thing, and people are, like, falling out about it. So much so, so that he's like, I got to get off of land. Land is full of too many of my fans. Let's go to the boat. So he gets into this boat with his disciples, and he's tuckered out from a day of Jesusing. So he takes a nap. He goes into the base of the boat, and he takes a nap. And up top, the disciples are probably, like, swapping stories. Could you believe? Did you see? Like, Ooh, Jesus. And they are riding that high of that post-miracle story-sharing experience. They have been to the mountaintop. They have seen the miraculous cures. They have been in the presence of God, and they believe. Then all of a sudden, up out of nowhere, comes the storm. We know about that climate, and we know that in this a body of water. It would not have been unusual for there to have been a calm and then suddenly a storm. These are also fishermen. So like, it's not like they're just afraid of a little rain. They know the water and they know when things are getting ugly. The sky is looking bad. All of a sudden it gets worse fast. The waves start to crash in on their boat. Water is coming into the boat and rocking it. What are they doing? Why are they this far out? Who are these dudes anyway that they barely know? And do they know how to save my ass during a a storm? This storm is going to kill them. They know it. They should have listened to their dad. They shouldn't have gotten out of the boat when that crazy stranger came and asked them to follow him or whatever. Somebody go wake up Jesus. We are going to die. So... Jesus wakes up, kind of pops up from his nap, and is like, what's up, guys? Oh, you look scared. What are you worried about? What are you so afraid of? And then, like, it's nothing. Says, storm, quit it out. Rebukes the storm. Not now, storm. And it just dies down. And the disciples are like, whoa. Because they have gone from seeing the face of Jesus to forgetting the face of Jesus to seeing it again. Now, as much as Jesus likes to pop up and say, like, why are you guys afraid? You should have more faith. Like, you have Jesus on your boat. You really can't blame them 
they're being rational. And the text goes a long way to try and communicate that to us. The Bible wants us to know that these fishermen were right to be afraid in a sort of rationed sense. In, in the Mark version of this story, it says, a great wind, windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. In Luke, it says, the boat was filling with water and they were in danger. These authors want you to know that they weren't getting riled up over nothing. They were getting riled up over something. They were afraid of real danger. But they had forgotten who they were with and what he could do. This is not the first time that the faithful followers In Exodus, we have the story of the Israelites escaping Egypt, escaping slavery. They have been enslaved for generations. And so what happens is that they get accustomed to their slavery. They get accustomed to their bondage. They get accustomed to the things shackling them. But they long to be made free. And so Jesus sends Moses to advocate for them. Jesus sends the plagues to drive the Egyptians to release them. There are miracles. There is blood raining from the sky. There are frogs everywhere. Like, this is not normal. Jesus is, or God is going outside of the bounds of physics and normal senses of reality to say, I am setting you free. I will not let this go on any longer. You will be set free. And it is what the people have longed for. And the miracles have finally come. And so they escape. And they're running away, and the Egyptians are in pursuit because the Egyptians have changed their minds and say, like, actually, wait, no, no, come back. Um, and so the, the Israelites are running away, and the Egyptians are following them. And then they become trapped at the Red Sea. And Scripture says in, they were in great fear as they came up to the Red Sea. And they start, five minutes after the last miracles, they start to just... Uh, you know, they sound really whiny to me. Um, scripture calls it complaining. They start to complain. They say, oh, Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to die here? They are so salty. They're so mad. They're like, you could have just left us to die back there. Why did you bring us all the way here to just kill us? And Moses is like, uh, hey, God, could you just a little help us out here? And so through Moses, God parts the sea and they walk through. The sea crashes on their enemies and they see that they have been saved from their oppressors. And so they thank God. Ah, oh, praise be. A few days later in the desert, they're thirsty. They come to a place with water, but it's bitter water. They can't drink it. So they start complaining again, says Scripture. So then the Lord shows Moses some wood and he's like, put the wood in the water and they do that. And then the water becomes sweet. Yay! Thanks, God! God follows that up by bringing them to a place with 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, which I gotta say is my kind of desert. But then they start running out of food and so they freak out again. They say, if only we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt, you have brought us out here to kill us with hunger, Moses. 
And they have forgotten again. They have forgotten again. And so what does God do? Does God say, like, you ungrateful people with the memory of a goldfish, you don't care about my miracles, I'm just going to stop doing them. No, God rains down manna on them for the next 40 years, miracle bread from heaven every day. God tells them, by the way, only take enough for today because I promise I'll give you more the next day. Guess what they don't do because they don't trust the miracle is going to come again. From a bird's eye view, these Israelites look hella whiny and so untrusting and like they have no memory of the God who loves them and cares for them. But if you zoom in on any of their immediate crisis experiences, I don't know how any of us could have really acted any other way. They've been enslaved, which they obviously don't love, but it's what they've known for generations. They see freedom for a second, only to get trapped by the Red Sea between the sea and the army incoming to murder them. They escape that, but then they're in the desert with no drinkable water. They find water, and they can't drink it. Then they're able to drink their fill, but what good will that do them if they starve out there? When you're in the midst of the story and in crisis, it's hard to remember where you've come from, and it's impossible to see where you're going. Human beings don't have a cosmic view of history like God does. And so we forget. But God remembers. This is actually a really enormous ongoing theme in the Hebrew scriptures. The God who remembers. The God who is faithful. The people who are faithful when they can remember, which is not very often. The people who forget. But the God who remembers. Later in this story, Moses goes up to a mountain for like a few weeks to get the Ten Commandments, and people are like, oh yeah, he's probably dead, and God has probably abandoned us. We better build a a golden calf. Let's just get a new God. And these these things that sound so silly from a distance in retrospect, they come from a very real and very present fear, and fear of loss, Fear that the thing that they were promised isn't real. Fear that their hope was a lie. I've got to make a confession. I'm a pretty fearful person. I'm a pretty doubting person. And one of the most innocuous uh, stories that I can tell about that is actually about my cat. I love my cat. My cat was actually maybe one of the first creatures I loved without feeling ashamed about it. Um, I've had her for 12 years, and I have not always been the affectionate person that I am today. I've never liked hugs. I didn't really like being touched. If somebody snuck up on me from behind, I was likely to try to harm them and miss. But my cat is a creature that taught me the meaning of affection and vulnerability. She would cuddle with me, and I opened myself up to that. I love my cat. 
And if I can't find her for like 30 seconds in my apartment, I'm like, well, she's probably dead. She probably died. People close to me will 100% verify this. Like, she gets extra affectionate with me, and I'm like, oh my gosh, does she have feline leukemia? It's probably that. She probably needs more love from me right now because she's suffering and on her deathbed. And like, I'm 20% kidding. I will leave you to do the math. I have such fear in me that love is not real, that affection is fleeting, that it actually makes more sense to me that she would be dead, that everything I love is an illusion, and that I'll probably lose it. And as funny and hopefully a little charming as that is with my cat, the truth is that that actually pervades the rest of my life. God has been faithful to me, and it is hard for me to remember that. It is really easy for me to doubt and to just expect that God's love won't be there for me in the future. Do you know how many miracles there have been in my life? Now, I'm not talking about defying physics or, like, hand of God intervening in these, like, um, you know, telenovela kind of ways. I'm talking about the miracles of the love of God impacting the universe and shaping my very being. I shouldn't have survived. All the stuff I told you about last week, I shouldn't have survived that. I shouldn't be clean coming on 14 years this fall. 15? I shouldn't be here, but I am. But not only that, I thought I wouldn't find affection. And I did, and not just in my cat. I thought I would never find community. But I have, over and over again. I thought I could never feel the presence of God. But I did, and sometimes I do. My life is littered with miracles, and I'm willing to bet that your life is too. But when that wave comes crashing into our boats and we haven't seen Jesus' face since we left the shore, we self-protect. See, it was all a lie. I never should have trusted and now I'm going to die. This doubt, it's natural, but it doesn't serve us. Back in Exodus, Moses gives the trembling Israelites a word of advice. He says, do not be afraid. Stand firm. The Lord, Yahweh, the one who is your God, will fight for you. You have only to keep still. You have only to keep still. This feels like really counterintuitive advice when we're panicking. Perfect love, scripture says, casts out fear. But our frantic energy, the anxiety that we experience when we give in to doubt, the fears that rise up in us, 
that drive us to try and self-protect, us to try and survive by our own hand, to say, no one is looking out for me, there is no love at the end of the universe. Those self-protective measures, that fear, it keeps us actually from the reality, from the grounding, from the moment that we are in, which is held together purely by God's love. God's love is the glue and substance of the universe. And we have only to keep still to remember the God who remembers us, to find our faith in the God who is always faithful to us, to remember the promises of love that created our reality in the first place. The army is closing in. The wave is about to crash. My student loans are going to be due again any day. There are people dying in the streets. I didn't get that job I really needed. The person I thought was the one broke up with me. My parents are being racist again. I can't afford gender-affirming health care. The problems are real. But we have forgotten who is in the fight with us. We have forgotten who fights for us. And we have forgotten why. Jesus is in the boat with you, even if you can't remember what his face looks like. The God who brought you out of slavery, the God who parted the waters for you, the God who brought you to the springs of life will not leave you to starve in the desert. The Lord will fight for us. What we have to do is find stillness in that moment of chaos, in that moment of the wave crashing in, in that moment of panic and doubt, which is normal, which is natural, which we hold without shame, in those moments, we need to find our grounding again. We need to remember the God who made us. I'd like to end today by doing a grounding exercise practicing that moment of stillness so that we can tap back in to God, so that we can remember the miracles that have come before, so that we can see the face of Jesus in front of us, even if it feels like he's asleep off somewhere else. So I want to invite you to attend to your body in whatever way you can. If you are seated, I want you to just move around in your seat a little bit and find settle into something comfortable. If you like, you can put your feet on the ground. I, uh, I love to put my feet on the ground barefoot. I'm not wearing shoes right now. And so put your feet on the ground. If you like, wiggle your toes if you're able. And feel the earth that supports you. Not just whatever surface is beneath you in your chair or your feet, but feel actually the ground that holds up the building that you're in or the grass that you're standing on. Feel the earth that God created and take in some deep breaths. As you breathe in, think of the word remember. And then breathe out any fear 
that is keeping you from this moment. I invite you to pray with me from this grounded space. God of perfect love, cast out our fear. God, you know the circumstances that bring up fear and doubt in us. The scripture shows us that we are your people and in the tradition of your people when we fear and doubt. That you do not judge us for it. You don't abandon us because of it. That you know our struggle well. God, release us from our fears. Bring us back to you. Help us to find the faith that you have in abundance. Help us to remember the promise that you have made for us. Help us to remember who we are. I invite each of you to remember back to the last time you felt God's presence or saw the face of Jesus in whatever way that means to you. And if you can't remember it in this lifetime, know that you did know Jesus, that you did know God, that you did know infinite love before you even came into being. Reach back to that truth, to that knowledge, and be still, letting love wash over you. Our God is faithful. And that's what makes our doubts okay. Amen.